Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the Afternoon Show. I'm Bill Arnold. Glad we're going to spend some time together today. Got a great show lined up for you. I've been working on it all day. Can hardly wait. Rob Blue is going to come on in just a minute. And Pastor Jamie Rasmussen will join me. And then a full hour with Dr. Mark Muska, where it's Ask the Professor. So get your questions ready. You can send them over anytime. Um, from now until uh, the time the show ends, start sending questions right away. 877 Eight four. I love that Psalm in one eight, uh, Psalm one hundred eighteen, verse twenty four, that says, "the The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad." I love that verse. Rob Louie is the executive editor at the Daily Signal, and he's a regular guest. Always gets my Tuesdays started. Rob, welcome. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be with you today. <laughs> yeah. Oh boy, boy, things are going crazy today in the news. Let's uh, sort through the the Virginia governor's race. Yes, well, it sure is my uh, my home state. Yes, uh, indeed, Virginia is uh, is the center of the political universe today because elections. Uh, it's a closely watched election between the two candidates, Republican Glenn Youngkin and Democrat Terry McAuliffe. Of course, McAuliffe has been Virginia's governor uh, for for four years. Virginia does not allow candidates to run for a second term. So he took a break for four years and is trying to mount a comeback. But Glenn Youngkin, who's a businessman uh, who has surprised a lot of people as being a political novice, uh, has come onto the scene and really, I think, uh, taken um, taken the state by storm, particularly on the issue of education. We've mm-hmm. talked about this in the past, Bill, but uh, education is a top issue in Virginia right now for a few reasons. Number one, there's still lingering frustration that so many schools shut down during COVID and uh, and and just really couldn't get their act together and reopened or or uh, were blocked by teachers unions or other uh, bureaucrats who just stood in the way. Uh, that's one issue. Of course, critical race theory is another big one. Uh, Virginia took some steps uh, that some school districts embraced that mm-hmm. uh, really uh, were a turnoff to a lot of parents who felt that they were bringing issues of race into the classroom and uh, discriminating between students of color. And finally, uh, the transgender issue and, and allowing uh, biological men into girls' uh, locker rooms and bathrooms, including a high-profile case of, uh, of a student who was, uh, was sexually assaulted um, in Loudoun County. And, uh, and by this biological male who was uh, wearing a skirt, um, transferred to a different school, and then uh, the, a similar incident happened at the second school. So these issues have really roiled uh, the, the, the voters in Virginia, and a lot of enthusiasm on the uh, Republican side, not as much, uh, if you judge by crowd capacity on the Democratic side. But I'll tell you, uh, Joe Biden won Virginia by 10 points. So that's a big hurdle to overcome. This is a state that is trending uh, toward the Democratic uh, Party for uh, close to 15, 20 years now. So we'll, uh, we'll be closely watching to see if, if Glenn Youngkin is, uh, is able to, um, to change the tide. And uh, very might well be his night. Rob, do you feel that education is kind of the pivot issue in this race? 
Oh, it, it certainly is. I mean, there are other issues going on, uh, including uh, obviously the effect of uh, the the economy, uh, which I think you know continues to be a national issue, which certainly has local ramifications in in Virginia. But uh, but where you're seeing a lot of the enthusiasm is the issue of education, and and I tell you that because even last week there were one over 120 people who showed up at a school board meeting in Loudoun County to speak, not just to attend and listen, but wow. to speak. They put their names on the, on the list to speak. They had to, uh, to, they didn't even have enough room inside. They had to, you know, uh, make them wait outside. So, so Bill, uh, when you have that many parents who I think are, are disgruntled and upset about uh, their kids' education, uh, it's a sign that the status quo is just not working. And, and I really want to stress that it's, it's, it's bringing together parents from across the political spectrum. Now, some of these parents, uh, they may have traditionally voted uh, for, for a Democrat, but they are frustrated that uh, these school boards are, are dominated by, by one political party and they don't really um, seem to be open to different ideas. And this was so true during the, the COVID um, uh, crisis, whereas school districts across the country were finding creative ways to get kids back in the classrooms. It seemed that some of the major, the, the, the large school districts, uh, Fairfax County has a school district that's 190,000 students. I mean, one of the largest in the country. Uh, they, they just couldn't get their act together. Uh, they, they didn't do, they did, first of all, they didn't do virtual learning very well because the systems that they were using were, were just not up to speed and, uh, and able to handle the volume. And then it just took them uh, an entire year before students even entered back in the classroom. And then when they did, uh, you know, even right now, their kids are forced to wear masks all day, uh, which, uh, you know, as our own studies at the Heritage Foundation have shown, might not have the, the results that, uh, that some of the mask proponents uh, claim that they do. So, so Bill, I think that uh, COVID is, is an underlying concern, but some of these other hot button political issues have popped up as well. So, Robin, do you think there's a particular voting group that is going to show up in, in big, um, big numbers today? Oh, I, I think it's uh, the suburban moms. Okay, that, uh, the mama you, bears. You, yeah, yeah, they're <laughs> the ones that uh, that are definitely taking this this seriously and uh, making their voices heard. Uh, I, I mean, I w- we'll see from the exit polls. Yeah. Obviously, uh, Virginia uh, polls close at seven p.m. Eastern tonight, so uh, we uh, we should start seeing results probably from the uh, more rural uh, counties and other parts of the state first. But yeah, it's uh, it, it's certainly an issue that has uh, has really riled up a lot of um, a lot of parents uh, in particular. And uh, it's a rainy day here in Northern Virginia. So, you know, they always say that rain sometimes depresses turnout because people don't want uh, to head, head out. Uh, I don't think you're going to get the same levels of turnout that we did during last year's presidential election. I, I, I think a lot of people are fired up, but I just don't know that, uh, that they're that fired up. In fact, by comparison, I walked, right, I walked right into my polling place today, had absolutely no weight, whereas last year the line, you know, stretched uh, probably 100 people or more uh, for the presidential election. So, uh, you know, just by contrast, uh, it's it's not uh, not quite on that same level where we had record turnout nationwide, actually. And that's an important thing to remember, Bill, because I think as we talk about these matters of election integrity and Virginia is another state that, that came under scrutiny for some of its election practices. Uh, we need to remember that, um, you know, despite the fact that we, and we have and this is relevant to what's going on Capitol Hill in Washington, because they have a new piece of legislation, the, the John Lewis Voting Rights Act uh, introduced in the Senate uh, this week. Uh, that uh, some of these problems, I, I think, are are in search of a solution that, that 
really, you know, I question whether or not they, they need to make voting any easier because we had record turnout. We, uh, we continue to see more and more people heading to the polls. And, uh, and these efforts that uh, they say the states are taking to suppress the vote just don't seem to be materializing when you actually look at the data. Rob, when do you think we will have a winner announced? My hope is uh, is early in the evening. <laughs> I do not want to yeah. stay up all night. Yeah. <laughs> so the Daily Signal, you know, your listeners can stay tuned to the Daily Signal. Uh, we will have, uh, have have our team working late into the evening with uh, all the results. I should also know, Bill, that this is not the only state voting today. Uh, New Jersey also has a gubernatorial election. There's a big mayoral race in New York City. Uh, there are, you know, our, our Elections happening all across the country for for local uh, and municipal offices. So, um, you know, this is a big uh, first Tuesday in November is always a big day, even in an off year election. So we'll have coverage of all of them. And of course, in my home state of uh, Minnesota, right here in Minneapolis, we have a big vote today on whether or not we're going to continue with the police or not. Yes, and and I will tell you, this is really an interesting issue because, as uh, as some national news outlets have reported, as they've they've taken a close look at at these uh, cities that made a big deal about defunding police or or really limiting the presence or shifting resources away from police to to other um, to other government agencies. That's in some cases not played out ex- exactly as I think they anticipated, and you've even had some fairly major uh, political movers uh, shift their position. New York City is one, one area to look at. If you, if you watch Eric Adams, the Democratic candidate for mayor, he is a former police chief himself. So, I mean, coming out of the police department, his message was law and order. And I think that resonated with New York City voters. Obviously not all of them, but in the Democratic primary for him to emerge victorious, uh, that sent a strong message that uh, defunding the police might not be as popular as, as a handful of people on Capitol Hill think it was. I know in Minneapolis there is the talk of defunding the police, and I don't know exactly what that means. I don't know if you know. It, it doesn't mean that we're not going to have police available, of course. You can't run a city without police, but uh, they're trying to uh, assign more and uh, social workers to go along with police or send uh, social workers when they feel like a cop is not needed. It's a very confusing situation in my head. It, it certainly is. And I, I think there's a couple things there. So, so you're right. Uh, defund the police is a clever slogan, but sometimes when you get into the details, it, uh, different people have different interpretations of it. Now, some people take it literally. And, and some of the activists take it literally. They, they do not want, they want to literally abolish the police. I think others, uh, as you indicated, probably have a, a different perspective. They, they might think that too much emphasis is placed on the police when it could be shifted to other, other government agencies or social workers, as you mentioned. Uh, and then there are still others who think that now is a time to actually invest more heavily in police because of the, the crime spike that we're, we're seeing over the course of the past year. Uh, I mean, these are crime statistics. Again, if you look at the publicly available data in, in, in certain cities, uh, you you will see that crime is increasing, and I mean mm-hmm. it's right here in my own backyard in Washington D.C. I mean we see it we see it here, and it's it's terrible um, to to see the people whose lives are broken uh, because of of the violence uh, in in some of these major urban areas, and I don't know how we overcome some of these these challenges if we are at the same time taking funding away from police, but at the same time, I think also demoralizing them so people don't want to go into law enforcement and they're having recruiting challenges or other people are retiring and they're not able to fill those positions. And so you're left with shortages and 
by the very nature, you just don't have as many people, Bill. Uh, you're not able to send them out for some of the calls that uh, they might have been able to respond to in the past. Yeah. Rob Louis, my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. We'll take a little break and we'll come back. Lots more with Rob. to the show. So glad you're with me today. Rob Blue is my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. You can always go to dailysignal.com to check out The Daily Signal. So Rob, um, Planned Parenthood said that due to the Texas abortion law, they're only seeing 20% of the patients they used to. So since abortion after a heartbeat is the only service that was cut, are they kind of admitting that 80% of their patients were there for abortions? I think we lost Rob Louie. Sorry, Bill. Oh, there Sorry, is. you were cutting out there. I'm I'm back. <laughs> yeah, I heard the question. You're you're absolutely correct that it is a situation where for years pro-life activists have have suggested, and again, you can look at the Planned Parenthood report and see the large no- the different types of services they provide and the large number of abortions that they perform. And in the case of Texas. Uh, the numbers don't lie. I mean, it is, I think, in many cases, a miracle that so many lives have been saved. Mm-hmm. I think they went from something like over 5,000 abortions in August down to something uh, like 2,000 in um, in September. So, I mean, think about all of the lives that were saved just in that one one month period. And, and I'm sure Planned Parenthood isn't the only abortion uh, provider um, that that operates in Texas, but obviously a a fairly significant and large one. But yes, they do advertise the other services they offer to women, but um, a large portion of their business is uh, abortion, and we should not be uh, confused uh, about uh, about the fact that that is is what they they specialize in, and um, they might try to hide it, but uh, they're not going to fool us. Mm -hmm. Rob, is the uh, Texas heartbeat abortion law in front of the Supreme Court right now? It, it big hearing yesterday. Okay. They, uh, the justices were deciding whether or not the case could uh, proceed. Because you'll remember, this is a unique law. Texas has passed the heartbeat law uh, with a statute that allows citizens to bring lawsuits against abortion providers. Whereas typically in the past, it would be government officials uh, representing the state that uh, that would bring uh, th- those lawsuits. And this, I think, has confused uh, some of the courts uh, because that's one of the reasons why the law has been allowed to to remain on the books and and not been given this injunction, uh, where which is what uh, obviously those uh, those supporters of Planned Parenthood and, and abortion advocates have 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 wanted to happen since it went into effect. And so the court was deciding and will decide if those lawsuits can proceed. Um, Conservatives were disappointed yesterday, I think, uh, by some of the justices' questions, including uh, Brett Kavanaugh, who allowed the law to remain in place earlier, uh, but suggested that there might be a loophole that Texas is using. 
And so I, I don't know exactly. How, we, we never really know how the justices are ultimately going to rule until they, they make their announcement, Bill. But, uh, but certainly it's an interesting case to watch, particularly because it, because it happened a month to the, to the day before the big Dobbs case uh, will be heard, which is December 1st. And everybody is really gearing up for the Dobbs case because that is the case that will likely be decided at the end of, the, end of June and could signal the end of Roe v. Wade. Now, what that would mean is essentially it's a decision that goes back to the states. Uh, and there are already a dozen states, uh, more progressive liberal states, that have laws on the book that would, would keep abortion legal. Uh, but there are several other states that have things like the heartbeat law in place that, um, that abortion would eff- effectively um, uh, stop um, after a certain period of time. Mm-hmm. Rob, let's chat a little bit about the continuing supply chain woes. Well... It, it, they are continuing, and uh, mm-hmm. and I think more and more people are are continu- are, are feeling the effects. I, I don't think that I, I don't know if the the businesses and the companies thought that they were doing us a favor by telling us to buy our Christmas presents early, but it seems that maybe that only, only exacerbated the problem because everybody is now now you know a month early doing all of their Christmas shopping. So. I, I think it you know has affected people in different parts of the country in different ways. Um, but yes, we continue to have problems uh, getting the goods into our ports, uh, the backlog of ships uh, out in the ocean, and um, and the, the challenges that uh, they come with unloading them and and finding the the truckers to to deliver them to stores and. And yes, uh, I think that ultimately, Bill, we're going to figure this out. We always do. There are innovative ideas that, that I, I've, I've heard discussed and, and different practices that businesses will employ in the future. But uh, again, <laughs> this is an effect of COVID. I mean, COVID really had a big impact on a number of the ways that, uh, that, that we live our lives. And uh, this was certainly one of them. And at the beginning of COVID, you'll remember the grocery store shelves were empty. You couldn't buy tissues or toilet paper or any of those things. And, uh, you know, um, there are just different different types of products that uh, you're having trouble getting today. On the show on Monday, I was talking with a guest about uh, last year, the California DMV uh, began refusing to register thousands of trucks. Um, and there was about an estimated 100,000 trucks under the threat because they weren't green enough. <laughs> Well, this is another this is another issue that that I think it's easy to it's easy for us to point to COVID, but yes, regulations right, do regulations. have a have a big impact. You're right. If if the companies are are in violation of the law or are not complying with the regulation, you better believe that they they're probably not going to be able to fulfill some of the things that they were able to do in the past. Mm-hmm. And and Bill, you know, uh, a religious related um, story here. We were in church on Sunday, and our our church just bought new prayer books uh, for the congregation, uh, thanks to some some generous donations from from other parishioners and our our pastor uh, stood up and said unfortunately uh, only half of the the prayer books were delivered because <laughs> the other half uh, are stuck in the supply chain delays mm-hmm. so I mean that that just goes to show like all of yes you, you see it visibly in the grocery store probably but I mean it just affects so many different aspects of our lives and and I think that the policies coming out of Washington are not helping right now and uh, yes I think we all want clean air and water. There's no, no doubt about that. But sometimes uh, the regulations that the government is imposing have unintended consequences and uh, businesses are sometimes slow to catch up. And uh, that's something you're seeing right now. Well, the inflation for Americans right now on products and at the pump is seeming to only go in one direction, Rob. And I don't know when that's going to level off. 
It sure is. I mean, the, the, the price of gas keeps going up every time I drive by the gas station, it seems. So uh, I, I don't think you're go going to see that go down anytime soon. I mean, President Biden admitted as much on that CNN town hall. He just seemed like he was unable and, uh, and, and really um, un even unwilling to, to do anything about it. Because in, in part, I think that that's for those who care about climate change and make that their life passion. I mean, they want to want to see us move away from gasoline cars and move toward electric vehicles. I mean, a big part of the bill that they're debating on Capitol Hill right now would allow for electric vehicle tax credits. And I think the thing that I know you and I've talked about in the past is the unaffordability of so many of these electric vehicles. I mean, frankly, they're, they are, for, for a lot of working families, they are just not an option. And I know that the government stepping in and offering this, this tax credit is, is meant as a, as a good faith effort to help. But ultimately, when you look at who it's ultimately going to be benefiting, Bill, it is those who are, who can afford electric vehicles. And so I, uh, it's the same way with the child care provision. It's not going to help the low-income workers. It's going to help those high-income workers who are now going to have uh, an, an addition, some additional money in their bank account uh, based on what the government's providing. So I, I do think that uh, you're even starting to hear criticism from people like Larry Summers, who's who's you know obviously a, 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 a longtime Democrat um, who has said that he cannot believe that the Democrats are passing are going are trying to pass a bill that would give tax breaks to the wealthiest of Americans in, in the form of these credits and, and other things. So, I mean, when even the Democrats are starting to complain again, uh, again you know, about what, what's being put forward, I think that it, it's time for us to take a close look and decide if this is the best way to get to where we want to go when it comes to climate change or if there are other solutions that we might be able to employ. Mm -hmm. Speaking of climate change, it's getting colder here in Minnesota, but that's beside the point. Did you follow much of the uh, climate summit trip? Oh yes, we're we are following it closely. Um, big uh, big announcements by by President Biden on the issue of methane. I know the Environmental Protection Agency has some new rules out today. Uh, but again, as we were just talking about, I I think that um, what a what a sharp contrast between the the previous two administrations. Whereas the Trump administration had a policy for for every new regulation that was proposed, they I think tried to take two regulations off the book. Um, you're, you're certainly going in the opposite direction. And I think that this sudden change uh, that, that happened in Washington has caught a lot of businesses by surprise, particularly after four years of enjoying uh, an environment where they didn't have to worry about onerous regulations coming out of D.C. Uh, now they're trying to, to adjust. So there are things that President Biden is trying to do on the domestic front, but he's also making an appeal to our foreign uh, allies and in some cases adversaries uh, to take the issue seriously. Unfortunately, some of the biggest players, China and Russia, are not in, in, in attendance at the conference. Um, and so that makes it a little bit challenging to get anything done when you have some of the biggest polluters not, not present. Mm -hmm. Did you take the uh, little blueies out for trick-or-treating the other night? Oh, we certainly did. All three of them were, <laughs> yeah. were out in force. What were and, their costumes? Uh, uh, being on a on a Sunday night uh, <laughs> with with no with no school the next day because we had we had no school on Monday. Uh, they were uh, Savannah the the two year old uh, was was dressed up as as a little kitten. 
um, uh, with a cute little tail and, and ears. Uh, Luke had a big chicken head, and Ben was um, a character from the Muppets whose name I am for embarrassingly forgetting. But they had a great time, and we live in a great neighborhood where where a lot of the families uh, still come out and participate. So it was a it was a good community building event, and um, you know it's it's those types of things that I think uh, are the memories that, that certainly stick with me from yeah, right. my childhood, and I hope do for my own kids. Yeah, well, Rob, I'll look forward to our next. Uh, conversation next Tuesday. We'll have a lot to talk about after what happens today. Thank you, Bill. You Appreciate bet. it. Have a good day. Rob Blue has been my guest, executive editor at The Daily Signal. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, Pastor Jamie Rasmussen will be joining me. Be right back. When God feels far away, how do you navigate that divine distance? I'm going to talk to uh, Pastor Jamie Rasmussen today about his new book, When God Feels Far Away, Eight Ways to Navigate Divine Distance. And he did this uh, through the story of Esther. And it was written at a time when God's people not only felt far from God, but he was silent towards them. And that made things a little tough. He's with me today, Jamie, all the way from Arizona. Welcome. Yeah, thanks. It's great to be with you, Bill. I, uh, I, I appreciate you and talking to you. And I'm reminded that we had our mutual friend, uh, Larry Crabb, who's gone on to be with the Lord. And what what a amazing man of God he was. Yeah, he, he really was. And he was uh, not just a friend, but also a mentor to me. In fact, uh, I dedicated this book to him uh, at the beginning of the book there, because he was probably one of the guys that helped me early on get honest about times when God feels far away. Mm-hmm. I love the comment you made to me prior to us starting the interview that uh, you said this is a, a deep book. And Larry said, oh, I won't sell well. <laughs> yeah. Larry, Larry always shot straight and he, uh, and, and, and he, 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 he called it as it was. But let's hope he's wrong on that one. <laughs> well, whenever I tell the, my listening audience that this is a, a deep book, that's just going to generate more interest. So trust me, I said that with uh, a motive, just so you know. Ah, there you go. Great. Yeah. So the book starts off, and I love what you have done when you talk about an input and output uh, pattern and theory that Christians seem to uh, walk with God and try to experience him with. I'd love for you to say more about that. Yeah, because I, I think that's the heart of or the part of the first part of the book, because it sets up why at times God feels far away, even for long seasons. Because what I've noted, Bill, and I've been a Christian for 40 years and a pastor for 30, is that across denominational lines and almost all kinds of Christian settings, what we teach people, very rightly so, is that they need to study the Bible, pray regularly, fellowship with other believers, worship, serve, you know, give of their tithes and offerings, love all people. We get, I call it the input. We tell them to, to put that into their daily routine in seeking God and interacting with others. And then we subtly, if not overtly, promise them an output. And again, this is in all kinds of churches. We say that if you do that, 
You're going to get more wisdom and knowledge, blessings from God, guidance in your circumstances, feelings of his presence, power from the spirit, you know, personal character growth. We might say it different ways, but we, we say you give the input and God will give the output. And it's eminently biblical. I mean, there's, there's nothing wrong with what I call the equation. The problem is, is that there, for those of us who get honest, there are times, even long seasons, where it doesn't quite work like it used to. And there are times where we're doing all the input and we don't see answered prayer. God seems silent. A fellowship seems a drag. Service is a drudgery, what have you. And, and, and it's those times that the book of Esther comes in, and that's what I've written the book for. Mm-hmm. Jamie, what about when the inputs don't seem to deliver the way they once did? Now, we are expecting God to give answers to us in his time, and that might mean there's uh, those seasons or times when you feel like God's not connecting to us the way we want him to. Yeah, and, and again, I, I point out in the book and I, uh, that, that it's biblical that there are seasons when God feels far away or maybe even, I mean, he's always with us, but at least from our perception and our experience base, He's not as close as he seemed to used to be. And my point is that's biblical, Bill. In 1 Samuel 3, 1, it says, In those days the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. And this was not when Israel went into apostasy or had fallen away. Those were in the glory days, if you will, of Israel. And then in the Psalms, there's such intimate Psalms, 10 of them. The psalmist says, Lord, why are you hiding your face from me? And though Bible experts argue whether or not God's really hiding his face or not, the one thing they all agree on is that God feels distant (laughs) to the psalmist, and it's not because the psalmist is sinning or had done something. And then I point out in the New Testament, there are plenty of times where the disciples and Paul the Apostle, doing their best, felt that they'd hit on some rough times and that God felt far away. And so my simple point is there are times where we're doing all the things we know to do as a follower of Jesus, and yet we still feel that God is distant. And that's what I wrote the book for, and that's where the book of Esther comes in. Mm -hmm. Let's talk a little bit more, Jamie, about uh, Esther. And there are uh, some pretty prominent things missing from the book of Esther, like God, (laughs) for example. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating book. You know, uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, hated the book. He said, I wish it wasn't in the Bible. You got to love Luther's honesty. And and he didn't like it because it's the only book out of 66, Bill, in which God is never once mentioned. His law is missing. Prayer as an activity is missing. Uh, Key principles like his grace and stuff toward his people are missing. Uh, The book just screams divine distance. And I point out in in this book, it's because God was distant from them. They were in exile. They were far away from the temple and the tabernacle where God's presence was. And though he's always with us, there was a palpable distance from God that the Israelites were experiencing at that time. And yet in the book of Esther are some, some ways that we can draw close to him that Esther and Mordecai and the Israelites show. But there's also missing... Uh, like God's law, there's no Ten Commandments, right. there's no Mosaic Covenant. There just seems to be no reference in Esther to God's laws. It's almost written like a secular book, Bill. Almost. And, 
Yeah, in fact, it's really kind of uh, humorous. I point this out in my book that that during the intertestamental period, because Esther was one of the last books written before those 300 silent years leading up to the New Testament, during that time, and an editor got a hold of the book of Esther and spiced it up. He, he added like 120 some odd verses to make it more like the Psalms. And he talked about God and prayer and grace and things and interspersed these verses in it. And it appears in some versions of the Bible in what we call the Apocrypha. And and yet we know that that was a later edition, which is why it doesn't appear in the Protestant version of our, of our Bible. And And yet I point out that we do that in our lives today, that when we feel dry and God feels far away, we spice up our language to look more spiritual than we are, and maybe it's okay just to be honest. Yeah, Jamie, are there any um, uh, references to prayer in Esther? No. There's some hints to it. Mm-hmm. I, I point out in the book that in, in chapter 4, when Esther calls on the Israelites to fast for three days, many times in the Bible fasting is linked with prayer, but ironically, Bill, she never says pray. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting. Let's talk about how we need to trust in God's providence, even when he feels distant. Yeah, and that's the key. In the book, it's way number one, because it is absolutely the first way that the book of Esther shows us, that when God feels distant, even though you have faith in Jesus and faith in the Bible and faith in the Holy Spirit, all the faith we need to have— the first recipe that the book of Esther gives us is to dig deep and trust in God's providence. The fact that he is absolutely 100% in control of your circumstances in this world. As Jesus said, every hair on your head is numbered, not a sparrow falls to the ground outside of his will, that he's got this even though he feels distant. And I point out that if somehow, well, not somehow, if we can choose to trust in his providence, there's a blessing in that that begins to uh, create more intimacy with God when we feel far from him. I want to take what you just said and have it on my smartphone and play it every day. (laughs) That was so encouraging and comforting and uh, just so spot on. Thank you for that. Well, it comes, It comes. if I could just say real quickly, it comes from personal experience, not just the Bible with me. My wife and I went through a really dark period with our middle daughter, and I've, she's given me freedom to tell the story, about 10 years ago when she was in high school, and she was struggling with some really deep-seated things, and it was a dark time, and we couldn't fix her. I, I can remember actually driving up to the mountains to, to be with her where she was at that time, and we, we mentioned Larry Crabb. Larry was on the phone with me, and he said, don't try to fix her. You can't. Mm. Just connect connect with your daughter's heart. And I did, but it was frustrating because I couldn't fix her. And my point is, is that we, at that time, my wife and I put a plaque up in our home uh, out of Jeremiah that basically says, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper and not harm you, plans for a future. And, 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 I, uh, and even though I know that was a promise given to Israel, I didn't mind claiming it for my family. And we just leaned into the providence of God for a couple of years when it came to our kid. And eventually, as the psalmist says, though there's weeping in the night, there's joy in the morning. And we saw light of day. But 
boy, did the providence of God become real to me at that time. Mm-hmm. Jamie Rasmussen is my guest. When God feels far away, eight ways to navigate divine distance is the name of his book. Way number two is choosing humility over pride. I love this, uh, Jamie. I'd love for you to say more. Yeah, you know, it, again, it's, it's front and center in the book of Esther. There's a, a contrast in Esther's story between Esther herself and the king, the secular king who she marries. His name is Ahasuerus or Xerxes, depending on your translation. And, and the contrast is, is, is I, I smile at it because it's, it's really life-giving. You, you got this arrogant king who's consumed with himself, and, and he only marries Esther because she's a 10. She's just beautiful. <laughs> I, I mean, the Bible says that. She's, like, gorgeous. Yeah. And, and, and yet she is so humble in her personhood. She says that, you know, they put him through this beauty treatment of like a year, and she says, ah, just give me what the minimum, you know, because I I know who I am. I'm secure in myself. I'm secure in God. And and there's just this contrast between the arrogant king and humble Esther, and then Esther's cousin Mordecai is also humble. And I point out that could it be that humility is one of the keys in navigating divine distance, because here Esther feels so far from God, but she maintains a humble posture toward life, toward others, toward God himself. And I and I say, could that be one of the keys to us navigating times of divine distance? And I simply point out, everybody knows this who knows the Bible, that God is drawn to the humble and he's repelled by the proud. Mm-hmm. Oh, what a great point. Jamie, let me take a short break. Jamie Rasmussen is my guest. His book is When God Feels Far Away, Eight Ways to Navigate Divine Distance. After a short break, we'll be right back with Jamie. away from you, you're going to be awfully glad to hear more from Pastor Jamie Rasmussen. He's here and written a book called When God Feels Far Away, Eight Ways to Navigate Divine Distance. Uh, Jamie, way number four is making good decisions in the storm. This has my attention in a big way. Yeah, and, and it should, because there's a real vulnerability, as many of us have experienced, when the Lord feels far from us or when we feel distant from Him, that you know, it's like the worst time to make a decision, right? Because we we don't feel spiritually strong, and we want to know what God's will is, and so how do we make a decision? So many times we try to put off those decisions, which is probably a smart thing to do, but what I point out in this chapter, Bill, is that there are some times where a tough decision needs to be made, you want to know God's will, you feel far from Him, but you have to make a decision. Time can't wait. And so I call it the triple threat, where mm-hmm. a hard decision needs to be made. You want to do it according to God's will, but you're in no place to discern his will. And the point is, is that the book of Esther gives us a little recipe, if you will, on how to make a good decision when life is storming over you and you feel far from God. Okay, you must say more. You can't hang me, can't hang me out here. <laughs> well, that was a clue for you to say, Jamie, what is it that it has? <laughs> All right. Here's, Jamie, here's what, what is it? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> yeah. Here, here's, what, here's what Esther says in, in, in chapter 4 of Esther. 
And that's that when Esther has to make a decision of whether or not she's going to risk her life to approach her arrogant husband, the king, to try to save Israel. She says to Mordecai, you know, I I don't know if I can do it. I don't know if I can go in. And the very famous verse uh, of Esther, chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, comes into play where Mordecai essentially says, you know, if you choose to do nothing, there still is going to be deliverance coming from another place. But who knows, maybe you've been raised for such a time as this. And I point out that in that famous verse, essentially what Mordecai is saying, this is what's so important, Bill, is he's saying to Esther that self-denial, denying yourself, just thinking of others and and not yourself, and other-centeredness, focusing on what others need, are what I'm arguing or what I'm putting before you, Esther, to make the tough decision to go in and see the king. And I call that God's reverse economics for decision-making. The way that our our economic system works in in our country right now is that if something costs somebody else and benefits you, then you'll make money. But God reverses that whole system when it comes to us making decisions in the kingdom and says that if it's something that will, will cost you greatly and then benefit others, then I kind of reverse this for it costs you and benefit others, then it's a really, really, really good decision. And so I point out that there actually is a way to make a decision when you feel far from God if you follow the pattern of Esther here, self-denial and other-centeredness. Mm-hmm. You say in your book, Jamie, faithfulness means remaining steadfast and loyal, firmly adhering to a promise you've made, a belief you've held dear or words you've said. Now, uh, a lot of people feel under attack, um, and they're trying to navigate through these times. And when God feels distant, even now in our world and in the culture, how do we survive that? Well, if you're referring to the chapter on faithfulness, I point out that faithfulness itself is one of the things that God applauds highly and that God just, you know, is a high value for kingdom-minded people, and that we, as you pointed out, we live in a world today in which faithfulness is just not applauded. I mean, we're not surprised anymore at all when people are unfaithful, whether as politicians, media elite, you know, civic leaders, you know, wherever you might find them. And I simply point out in the book that God rewards faithfulness. In the book of Esther, as they remain faithful to following through with the plan to save Israel, God provides justice, honor, protection, joy, even evangelism, which was rare in the Old Testament. God applies all of that. And I point out that it's still the same today, that even though God feels far away, you and I can choose to remain faithful, theologically, behaviorally, emotionally, to God, to take the narrow road. And when we do that, Again, as the psalmist said, though there's weeping in the night, there's joy in the morning, and eventually we're going to see the light of day again and be walking faithfully with God. Mm -hmm. Jamie Rasmussen is my guest. His book is When God Feels Far Away, Eight Ways to Navigate Divine Distance. Um, I appreciate that that faithfulness that delivers. God always calls us to be faithful. Um, Let's talk about way number seven, Jamie. You talk about handling power. Yeah. One of the 
uh, editors at Baker, uh, this young gal said this was her favorite chapter because uh, one of the things that the Book of Esther points out to us, Bill, is that when God feels far away, we still are held accountable for how we use the power that we have. And, and I point out that no matter how beat up your life is right now, you have power. Everybody does. We mm-hmm. have creation power made in the image of God. We can, we are willful. We can make decisions, what have you. If you're a Christian, you have Holy Spirit power because the Spirit resides in you, even amidst all the, the, the sin and crud you might be struggling with. And so we all have some power, and God's greatest concern is what we do with that power. And again, the story of Esther screams to us today that what God wants us to do is wisely temper the power that we have, even when he feels far away, to make sure that we're not abusing other people with the power that we have, that we're not overusing it, and and that we kind of put a throttle on our power. Because again, it's timely today. Christians, at least in my opinion, are just out there trying to have a power struggle with the world. And God is saying that our greatest witness is in the godly or wise use of our power, not in always kind of clobbering people with it. Mm -hmm. When I feel beat up, Jamie, I go to Ephesians chapter 1 when it talks about the great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and has seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. That is the same power that's available to us as believers. Yeah, it's really true. Uh, it me a little saying that we have around here, and that is, uh, you know, um, don't tell God how big your problems are. Tell your problems how big God is. Yeah, that's so, <laughs> so good. It's so good. Really? Um, let's talk a little bit about um, celebrations and celebrating the victories. Well, the book of Esther ends with them, with Israel being delivered and saved. And they have a, a huge celebration that continues to today, Bill, 2,400, 2,500 years later, uh, called the, uh, the the Festival of Purim. And if you're Jewish, you're familiar with that. Or if you're a Jewish Christian, you're familiar with it. And it's where they celebrate. Even today, the, the, the deliverance of Israel 2,500 years ago from the hand of the Persians. And, and, and I point out, and, and this is really the convicting thing for me, I, I point out that if celebration was key to them connecting again with God back then, why don't Christians celebrate more? And my, my wife convicts me of this one. She says, you know, you're always building the kingdom, you're always taking the next hill, but you don't celebrate enough what mm. God is doing right now in your midst. And the Israelite culture almost embarrasses us as Christians today because they have a celebration for almost every move of God in the <laughs> Old Testament. You know, and, and it's very rich. And yet, you know, we have Christmas and Easter. <laughs> and and so I, I I'm not down on us. It just makes me salivate to want to celebrate more. And I talk about that in the chapter of some things we can do to celebrate more as Christians. Talk a little bit, Jamie, if you would, about creating space in your life for God to do the things that really only He can do. Yeah, that's my favorite chapter, Bill. Um, it's it's way number five, and I I steal something from the famous uh, Franklin Graham. Uh, Franklin Graham wrote an autobiography years ago called Rebel with a Cause. And in it, he tells the story of Bob Pierce, who was one of the early leaders of World Vision, and how Bob took Franklin on a whirlwind tour 
of the neediest places in the world and said, and this is the point, that when you try to do something really big for God, you got to leave plenty of God room. You, you, you need to leave room for him to show up and do only what he can do. And that phrase, God room, uh, resonated with me almost 20 years ago as I was first studying the book of Esther. And I see God room in the book of Esther. There's this, and again, I detail it in the chapter, there's this this scene where Esther's trying to tell her husband, the king, all the bad things that the arch enemy Haman is doing. And, and she does a weird thing. She invites him to dinner and then doesn't tell him and then says, if you come to dinner tomorrow night, I'll tell you. And she mm-hmm. creates this this space that's confused Bible experts and commentators for years. And yet what they almost all settle on is that in that space that Esther created, some interesting things happened that warmed the king's heart to Esther and cooled his heart to his right-hand man, Haman. And I list these eight or nine things that happen in that, that, that period of time. And I point out that Esther created God room. She created space for God to show up and do what only he can do. And and the old-time spiritualists call that waiting on God, just mm-hmm. slowing down, and waiting on God to do what only he can do. And it's a lost art today. And I tell some stories about you know how I've had to learn to wait on God and the blessings that come, especially when he feels far away, when I learn to do that. Yeah, we just got about 90 seconds left, Jamie. But I suppose if you're feeling distant from God for a lot of people, it's going to be hard to admit that, because that's not what a good Christian would say. Well, and I deal with that in the early chapters. Look, I God eventually had to twist my arm behind my back until I cried uncle <laughs> in, yeah. in, in my early days to essentially get honest. And I made a decision, Bill, about 25, 30 years ago that, one, I'm not going to settle for a, a placid relationship with God in which he feels far away. And secondly, I'm going to be honest when it happens. And through honesty and exploration, I have found a much closer relationship with God, and I hope I can help people do that as well. Mm-hmm. And if people get to um, Scottsdale for a little R&R, can they head over to Scottsdale <laughs> Bible Church and, and uh, be part of your Sunday morning worship? Absolutely. We actually have four campuses in the Phoenix area, and uh, they all have the same worship and, and the same message, and uh, we'd love to have anybody visit us anytime. Nice. So what I'm hearing you say is I'm welcome in your basement for a month. You are. Okay. Well, we have basements here in Phoenix, <laughs> oh. but, but you're welcome in my guest room anytime. <laughs> Thanks, Jamie. Have a great rest of the day. All right. Thank you, you so bet. much. Jamie Rasmussen has been my guest. When God feels far away, eight ways to navigate divine distance. We'll take a short break and be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.